welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for October 23rd to 29th. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during This Week in Psychology's past. Then we'll have our feature interview with Professor Lawrence Stern about James McConnell, who thought his worms could learn by eating smarter fellow worms. And finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of important psychologists. All this and more on this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. October 23rd. In the year 1247, the Priory of St. Mary of Bethlehem, later to become Bethlehem Hospital, or Bedlam, was founded on land donated by Simon Fitzmarriott, Bishopsgate Without, London. This original site is now located under the Liverpool Street Railway Station. The Priory was first used to house distracted persons, as they were called, in around the year 1377. For October 24th, in 1873, English physician William Withy Gull presented the first authentic description of anorexia nervosa in an address before the annual meeting of the British Medical Association at Oxford. And also for October 24th, in 1901, the British Psychological Society was founded at University College London. The founding meeting was called by James Sully. And also on October 24th in 1976, the London Sunday Times published a letter from Oliver Gilly accusing Sir Cyril Burt of altering his data on kinship and intelligence. The charge was repeated in a Times article of October 25th by Tim Devlin. For October 25th, in 1884, James McKean Cattell presented his dissertation proposal to Wilhelm Wundt. The title was An Essay on Psychometry, or the Time Taken Up by Simple Mental Processes. And on October 25th in 1922, the first in a series of articles by journalist Walter Lippmann attacking the Army Alpha Test of Intellectual Achievement appeared in the New Republic. The articles and replies by Lewis Terman and Edwin G. Boring presented now familiar controversies about intelligence testing to the American public. For October 26th, in 1967, the first report of sign language performance by the chimpanzee named Washoe was delivered by R. Allen Gardner and Beatrice Gardner at the annual meeting of the Psychonomic Society. For October 27th, in 1891, the first of William James's Talks to Teachers was delivered at noon in the Upper Dane Hall Laboratory of Harvard University. There were 10 lectures in this series, which was repeated around the United States during the ensuing years and was published as a book in 1899. Also on October 27th, in 1924, Sigmund Freud appeared on the cover of Time Magazine for the first time. And also on October 27th in 1932, Sir Charles. And also on October 27th in 1932, Sir Charles Sherrington and Edgar Adrian won the Nobel Prize for their studies of the physiology of the neuron. On October 28th in 1879, the Johns Hopkins University Metaphysical Club first met in the logic room of Johns Hopkins University. 
Philosopher and early psychologist Charles Sanders Peirce was elected president at this meeting. During the club's existence, presentations were made by more than 50 participants, including Peirce, John Dewey, H. H. Donaldson, Joseph Jastrow, G. Stanley Hall, James McKean Cattell, Christine Ladd, and Josiah Royce. And finally, for October 29th, in 1882, the woman known as Anna O. was discharged from the Bellevue Sanatorium in Kreuzlingen, Switzerland. She had been admitted on July 12th, after 18 months of treatment by Josef Breuer that proved to be a cornerstone of the psychoanalytic method, but not a satisfactory end to Anna's psychological problems. October 26 marks the birth in 1925 of James V. McConnell, a University of Michigan professor who, although not well known today, was at the center of a storm of controversy in the 1960s. McConnell claimed not only that he could teach tiny planaria, or flatworms, to react to the turning on of a light, but astonishingly that if he fed the ground-up remains of the trained worms to untrained worms, the untrained worms would acquire the knowledge their meal had possessed when alive. Naturally, McConnell's colleagues were skeptical, and the matter turned into a raging debate. On the line to talk to us about this amazing story is Professor Lawrence Stern of Collin College near Dallas, Texas. So perhaps we could uh, start with just who James McConnell was. Uh, where was he trained, and what brought him to the topic of memory transfer in flatworms, of all things? McConnell's one of those very interesting cases. Uh, and actually, he went through two different types of training, which are relevant to this entire episode. On the one hand, McConnell was trained in the art of public relations and in media. He was a radio personality as he was working his way through uh, his undergraduate degree at LSU in Shreveport. After McConnell graduated from LSU in 1946, he bounced around a lot as a disc jockey at radio stations in the Southwest, became a program director in Galveston and wrote and produced a series of radio scripts that actually received national recognition by the National Association of the education by radio. So he already was somewhat of a personality, but he got burnt out, and he then went to the University of Texas in Austin to get a degree in psychology, where he was trained by uh, Kurt uh, Dallenbach, who was a, a rather uh, well-known psychologist at the time. Mm -hmm. It was after that that he landed at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor in 1956 for his first uh, position, and he was told that he needed to publish something. He did do an experiment with a fellow graduate student in Austin where he was doing a simple Pavlovian conditioning experiment, but rather than using rats or dogs, he wound up using these little worms, planarian worms, about an inch long. So how do you know whether a worm has learned the thing you want it to learn or not? Well, as in conditioning, you observe it. What he did here is he tried to go and pair the onset of a bright light with an electric shock. And with an electric shock, the worm should basically scrunch up. And that was going to be the indicator. Now, if you pair these two uh, stimuli, each time the light goes on in anticipation of the shock, the worm should scrunch mm -hmm. or turn its head one way or the other. Now, obviously, this is not something that you can record automatically. So it does depend upon observers actually watching the worms. And in fact, it may be the case that two or more investigators 
watching these worms might not code it exactly the same way. So already there's going to be a, some room for some slippage in the interpretation of the results. And in fact, people did complain a bit later. Now, it should be noted that when this experiment was done, there was no static at all. Right. Worms were trained. Most people believed it. Some didn't believe that anything you know, lower than a uh, college sophomore could actually learn anything, <laughs> or a rat. But it just went along. It's when McConnell got to Michigan and he began to further this research program, things got really sticky. Well, worms are rather peculiar, but they're quite interesting as well. If you take a worm and if you cut it in half, the head will grow a tail and the tail will grow a new head. It could regenerate parts of its body, like a starfish. If you cut it into 15 pieces, each piece will grow a complete body. So he wondered what would happen if you now classically conditioned this worm, cut it in half, had each half regenerate, as to which half would actually retain the memory of the learned event. Mm -hmm. And to his amazement, to his bewilderment, he found that the tail end retained nearly as much and sometimes more than the head. This was totally against all of the conventional thinking as to how memory operates in living things. Mm -hmm. At the time, memory was conceived to be primarily a matter of neural impulses traveling across very well-defined neural pathways. And McConnell was basically saying that these new regenerated worms don't have any of the neural pathways that the original worm had had. So the only thing that he can conceive of that would account for this memory being traveling to the tail end would be that the memory itself was coded in a particular molecular form. Mm -hmm. And this wasn't as strange as it may sound, because at that time, this is hot on the heels of Watson and Crick's famous discovery of the structure of DNA, where they now believe that, and it has been certainly you know, well documented, that our genetic memory, how to make a hand, how to make a, an eye, the hair color that you have, is in fact coded in nucleic acids, in DNA. McConnell said, if that's the case, how about acquired information, new memories, encoded in RNA? And if that's the case, how can we now test whether or not a specific memory has a particular unique variation of a particular molecule? So how did he do that? Thing, well, you know, he's, he's a funny guy, and he, he tried all sorts of different things. Initially, he took a trained worm, chopped off its head, and tried to graft it onto a another worm, so that the worm would have two heads, but the head kept falling off. <laughs> and he thought that he would take these uh, worms, and after they'd be trained, uh, he would basically put them in a blender and try to inject the sort of planarian puree into these naive, untrained uh, planarians. But things were very crude back then, and the hypodermic needles were much too thick. Uh, it was sort of like trying to impale a prune with a javelin of sorts. And when you got the needle into the, into the worm, either the hole was too big and all of this stuff oozed out, and he saw when he was successful, and he actually injected it into a worm, sometimes it would just simply pop and explode because there was too much. Mm -hmm. But he was told by one of his colleagues that a certain species of planarian worms are cannibalistic, and the light bulb went on over his head. He trained worms. He then took other naive worms that were going to be a control that were not trained, chopped them up into little pieces, and fed them to cannibalistic worms. Lo and behold, the cannibals that cannibalized their educated brethren, as compared to those who cannibalized untrained worms, retained the memory of the learned uh, response, 
far much more than one would imagine. And McConnell is now going around talking about his new Mau Mau hypothesis. Well, this is an astonishing result, but apparently other uh, reputable government-funded labs were confirming these results, and some were even using uh, mammals. Is that right? The mammals came a bit later, but it's important to note that while McConnell was working with these worms on RNA, there were other reputable labs trying to see if RNA was implicated in memory processes, but using different methodological approaches. For example, and very briefly, go and take a, a goldfish or take a rat. And just prior to it learning a particular task, inject it with certain antibiotics, which will inhibit the synthesis of RNA. And the rat doesn't remember anything. Mm -hmm. So RNA is implicated in somehow in memory. Or go and inject these test animals with certain drugs that will in speed up the synthesis of RNA. And now there's an enhancement effect. Mm -hmm. What was going on, however, is that these experimenters were saying that RNA is important for the consolidation of memory from short-term to long-term in the sense that RNA simply goes and makes for better synaptic connections. Today, what they would refer to as modulating these connections, making them stronger or weaker, that there's no specific information coded in the molecular structure. It's of a more general effect. Mm -hmm. McConnell says, no, it's specific. Every memory has a particular molecular configuration on RNA, and the way to do that is to transfer one, transfer one of these from one beast to another. And you're absolutely right. This was an experiment that most people thought was outrageous, but just too darned important to ignore. And some of the very reputable molecular biologists all began to think about it and talk about it. And McConnell, even though he was considered to be somewhat outlandish, was given a seat at the table. He was invited to the major conferences, he made presentations, he was talking with Nobel Prize winners, they all wanted to hear what he had to say. Mm -hmm. Now the tide began to turn in about 1964, the cannibalism experiment came out in 1962, when there were others who were having severe difficulties in trying to replicate the experiment. Some said they couldn't even get worms to learn, much less transfer it from one species to another. And because of that, uh, there was a sort of a, a lull. But McConnell was getting funds, handsomely funded, by the Atomic Energy Commission, by the National Institutes of Mental Health. He won a very prestigious career development award. He certainly wasn't ostracized. He was actually riding quite high. Mm -hmm. But at that moment, in 1964, at the end of 64, other laboratories, independently, based upon McConnell's work, did the same experiments using rats. And nobody doubted whether or not rats could learn. And as soon as this came out, and it came out in a very reputable journal, it was published by Alan Jacobson, who was a student of McConnell's, now out at UCLA, in the journal Science. Another report came out in the journal Nature. And two reports came out overseas, one in Scandinavia and one in Czechoslovakia. And then, uh, to put it mildly, all hell broke loose. You now had reputable labs literally dropping everything they were doing to try to go in to see if this, in fact, would be the case. Because if it was the case, there's a Nobel Prize in the offering. Now it dramatically, it rev dramatically revolutionizes everything we know about memory processes. Now, in the procedures with the rats and the mice, were they having rats eat other rats that had learned, or were they just injecting? How, were, how was the rat procedure done? Yeah, cannibalism would be very difficult with rats, not to mention gruesome. Mm -hmm. What they basically did is they would go and run these rats, and they would... 
uh, I guess the correct term back then was harvest these rats, would be to put it in a little guillotine, mm-hmm. take its brain, and take either a brain extract or a certain purified portion of the brain and inject it into the recipients. It, in some cases, and here was a problem, it was injected into the gut, into the stomach of these animals. Mm-hmm. In other instances, it was injected directly into the brain, although that was a lot trickier. In any event, dozens of labs literally drop what they're doing. Some are getting positive results. Some are getting negative results. And to show how um, important the community thought, through the grapevine, at various meetings, researchers at Berkeley, MIT, Harvard, and various other places heard that they were having difficulties replicating the work. And rather than sending in a paper to a journal saying, we've tried this and it didn't work, they did an extraordinary thing. They all got together and decided to write a letter to the journal Science, collectively stating how they were unable to replicate this particular work. They all signed it, 23 different researchers from eight different labs, and it had a rather dampening effect on the field. Most people now believe that it just couldn't be done. And that came in what year, 66? That was in 1966, Mm -hmm. nevertheless. Many, many labs continued to work on it, and McConnell was no longer... Uh, the top dog anymore. McConnell was getting a great deal of media attention. Uh, he was very quotable. He was, he was actually quite witty at conferences. He was in Fortune magazine, Life magazine, Esquire magazine. Uh, basically, he was one of the uh, first celebrity scientists of the modern era. And that actually put some people off. Hmm. Uh, and it did threaten his, uh, his credibility. But when other people began to come through and to show positive results with rats, the field basically had a, a resurgence. Right. Now, the 1960s were a really interesting time in many ways. On the one hand, there was the counterculture movement, sort of embracing unconventional ideas almost as fast as it could generate them. But there was also the Cold War, which led the U.S. government, especially the military, to support scientific research in a wide variety of forms um, in order to keep a leg up on the Soviets as they saw it. So do you think there was an impact between these two powerful social trends uh, on the course of the flatworm research? Well, what's very interesting, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, McConnell got uh, much of his early funding from the Atomic Energy Commission, and he was working also on radiation studies of these worms because they were concerned what would happen during a some sort of a nuclear you know, blast and how that would go and change certain developmental processes. So that helped some of his funding. As far as it being embraced by uh, the scientific community due to the... Uh, unconventional aspects of it, uh, I'm sure there were many who, in fact, did flock to it. Uh, back in the 1960s, you know, scientists also uh, were political human beings as well. Uh, they had different uh, orientations. There were some who flocked to McConnell uh, as a sort of guru who thought that he was now you know, telling it like it is, taking people behind the scenes, uh, showing that there is a human side to science, and they liked that. Mm-hmm. Others were very, very upset about that. So in that tumultuous times, uh, there was a great deal of polarization. And I'm sure that in some instances it helped, in some instances it hurt, depending upon which side of the fence you as an individual found yourself. All right. So finally, I guess, do you think that there's a legacy to this episode? Is there a general lesson here about the way science proceeds as a social enterprise and about the ways in which science recounts its, its own past to itself? Well, there is, but let me make one quick comment just beforehand. Yeah. Uh, when looking at McConnell, you know, there are many different types of impact that you could look at. 
when McConnell did the cannibalism studies and it came out, and just prior to that, those first regeneration studies, big news stories in Newsweek, Time, and elsewhere. Now, this is right during the Cold War. We in the United States were in a funk over Sputnik because the Soviets got there first. And one of the things they did in Washington is they now had this new found emphasis on science education, in particular in the form of science fair projects. There were literally thousands of people, students, who wrote McConnell about the worm experiments, wanting to do this as a science fair project. It generated enormous interest from an entire generation of high school students and got them interested in science. And that in and of itself is an interesting story uh, and one that they should be pursued further, you know, one day. In order to deal with these folks, McConnell could not answer each letter individually. So that's how he founded his new journal, which was called the Worm Runner's Digest, which initially was simply the experimental protocol, telling students how to care for worms, how to do the experiments. Mm -hmm. Before he knew it, however, people started making submissions, and the journal then took off and ran for close to uh, 18 years. And in that journal, he not only had published scientific articles as editor, but also spoofs, satires, jokes, things of that sort. Again, he was a very humorous man. Mm -hmm. But while he was doing this, one would think, here's this radio personality with an oddball research site, Worms, challenging all of the conventional theories about memory, how does science deal with those things? Mm -hmm. And as odd as it sounds, science actually dealt with it in the only way it knows how, and that is to take a good, long, careful look. Science is always being besieged with certain knowledge claims that depart in very significant ways from the prevailing frameworks. And you never know at first whether it's going to be a boon, leading to a Nobel Prize, or being a bust. Mm -hmm. So the scientific community has to, at least for a time, accommodate these claims, give them some breathing room, in fact, nourish them a while, give them a certain grace period, shelter them from the storm of criticism. And in fact, McConnell was given at least a seven to ten year grace period where he got all of his funding, where he was able to publish in various journals, and where he was able to go and to recruit others. After a period of time, of course, science says it's time now to put up or shut up. But to falsify something is a logical category. Actually rejecting it is behavioral. And there are always scientists that keep coming back to this very provocative idea so that it has these ups and downs. And this case is something that illustrates that quite well. Well, thank you very much for this. We've been speaking with Professor Lawrence Stern of Collin College near Dallas, Texas, about James V. McConnell's learning research with flatworms in the 1960s. An interesting addendum to this story is that McConnell was actually one of the victims of the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. Um, although he wasn't seriously injured, a bomb was sent to his house, uh, which did explode there and do considerable damage. And now it's time for birthdays. For October 23rd, in 1885, Albert T. Poffenberger was born. A Columbia professor, Poffenberger's interests were in applied and physiological psychology, and he was also the last president of the American Association for Applied Psychology and urged its unification with the American Psychological Association, which occurred in 1945. Poffenberger was president of the APA in 1935. 
Also for October 23rd, in 1886, Edwin G. Boring was born. Boring worked in areas of sensation, perception, and cognition, but is probably best known as a historian of psychology. His book, A History of Experimental Psychology, has been a standard text and reference work since its publication in 1929. Boring served as APA president in 1928. For October 26th, in 1925, David Premack was born. Premick is known for his work on learning and motivation, but is probably best remembered for attempting to teach symbolic language to chimpanzees. For October 28th, in 1917, Patricia Kane Smith was born. Smith was the first woman to be granted tenure at Cornell University. Her interests were in industrial organizational psychology, measurement, statistics, and job satisfaction. And finally, for October 29th, in 1791, John Elliotson was born. Elliotson was a prominent London physician and a member of the faculty at University College London, and he helped to found the Phrenological Society of London and promoted the use and scientific study of mesmerism in England. And that's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website, Today in the History of Psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or York University.